This is Crescent Project Radio, bringing you powerful testimony, practical teaching, and exciting truth about God's miraculous movement in the Muslim world and how we as Christians can join Him in this kingdom work. Our goal is to see every Muslim have an opportunity to respond to the gospel and be connected to a true follower of Jesus. You can find us online at crescentproject.org. Have a comment or question? Email them to radio at crescentproject.org. We would love to hear from you and have a chance to respond on a future program. Hi, I'm Rashida, and you're listening to Crescent Project Radio, where we believe we have a hope worth sharing. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Abdu Murray, co-founder and president of Embrace the Truth Ministry and Global Apologist. We've been having a really fascinating conversation about Ahmadiyya Islam, a proselytizing Muslim sect that most Christians don't know much about. It's the sect of Islam that Nabil Qureshi, author of the best-selling book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, was a part of before he decided to follow Jesus. Abdu, in just a few minutes, we will talk more broadly about sharing the gospel with Muslims But first, I want to ask you this question. What are some unique challenges that a Christian will face as they try to share the gospel with Muslims from an Ahmadiyya Muslim background? Well, we've alluded to it in the first uh, segment as well. And this is one that I think can't be gainsaid. It's it's, it's something worth repeating and then really focusing on. The first thing is, is that when you have a community like this, a minority sect, that is often persecuted, there becomes a cohesiveness to the community that rallies around itself because of its persecution, and it sees its cause as righteous, and it sees its mm-hmm. cause as important. And when you think about the number of people that you love who are willing to give their lives in order to spread this message, it becomes very difficult to turn your back on it, even when the truth looms large in the conversation, or you begin to see what um, the truth of the gospel is actually calling you to do, which is to die to yourself. Well, you've, you've seen and heard the stories of your family members. Maybe you yourself have gone through, if you're an Ahmadi Muslim, some level of either physical, emotional, societal, or cultural persecution. And so, Jesus says, come and die. And you're like, yeah, but I did that for this message. And it would be the ultimate betrayal if I turn my back on it. Plus, there's an emotional investment. So, I think it's key for us to remember that whenever you're speaking to uh, anybody, and of course, this this sect in particular, because of the insularity and the the solidarity, more importantly, of this uh, movement of this sect, is that you're going to come with a lot of baggage. So, what'll end up happening is you have this in, incredibly rich, back and forth intellectual conversation with somebody, and you're wondering why is it this brilliant person is not hearing what I'm saying and not getting the impact of what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And you might, it would serve us well to know that the reason isn't because what you're saying is hard to understand. It's just that it's hard to embrace because of the emotional and societal consequences, whether it's your family disowns you or you feel, even beyond that, a sense of betrayal and disloyalty to those who have sacrificed so much in that movement itself. So that's a particularly unique challenge. Mm-hmm. The authority structure as well within the Ahmadi sect, Islam in general, 
uh, has an authority structure. You know, people come to learn their truths in different cultures in different ways. So mm -hmm. in the West, we have this sort of hyper-individualism where you can find out the truth for yourself. So you go on YouTube, you go to classes, you go to university, you study what you want to study, and it's up to you to find out the truth. And, and mm -hmm. you're the authority, essentially. Yes. Um, you don't need a higher authority. Well, in the East and the Middle East, that's not how it works. It works okay. communally in an honor and shame society. You do that which honors your community and you avoid that which shames your community, which means that if you believe something true, yet it shames your community, you are supposed to shun that thing, even if it's true, because it doesn't bring honor and it only brings shame. But also, and especially within an Ahmadi community, you have an authority structure that's based on eldership. So the, the ulama, the, those who know, those who are learned or who are um, scholarly, whether they are, actually are scholarly or it's not the issue, but they're older and mm -hmm. they've been around for a while. And either they're your parents or your parents' um, imams or whoever it happens to be, they carry with them an authority just by virtue of being older which is a wonderful thing in some senses, but it can be overshadowed by, it can, sorry, it can overshadow the truth. So there's authority structure as well. And so when you're, let's say you're talking to somebody who's your age and you're telling them about the gospel and they're listening to you and you're seeing resistance, not only is there baggage because of the other stuff, you know, because of the uh, persecution, but also you don't have credibility because you're not older. You don't have credibility because you're not a, a scholar, a halama, who knows the stuff, as it were. So that's a general barrier in Islam, but it's a specific barrier within the Ahmadi tradition as well, because their um, traditions have passed down through their parents and through the missionaries as well. So those are barriers. Those are, those are serious barriers. Can they be overcome? Well, you bet. Absolutely they can be. But um, we have to be aware of that as well. Um, and, and like I said, in most of these insular minority sects, there's a loyalty that's built in that I won't say is cult is a cult, but it's it's got that same level of attachment um, that's very hard to break. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like in conversations that I've had that I wasn't just having a conversation with a person in the room, but they were assuming that their elders would have the answers to my questions. So mm -hmm. it wasn't, it didn't rattle them, but so much that they couldn't answer my questions because they were, they were assured in their minds that um, other people would have the answers that like, you know, I minister to women. And so, you know, well, the woman's leader in my community, she, you know, if she had lunch with you. She could answer all your questions, um, which is, yeah, it's just, that is different to, um, well, Jehovah's Witnesses, it's funny because Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door to door, and this happens with Jehovah's Witnesses. Hmm. Um, they'll come and they'll have their Reasoning from the Scriptures little book, and they'll try to do a free Bible study with you, which is basically, I hate to say it this way, but it's an indoctrination class uh, hmm. where they try to get you to see that the things that you've believed because of you know your pastors and all this stuff, those are all false, and here's what the Bible really says, and all that. And then you start to say, hey, wait a minute, I have I happen to know a couple of things here and there. And will center on the person of Christ as the incarnation of God in the flesh. Well, they don't believe in that. Jehovah's Witnesses don't. So they'll respond to you with some standard pat answers. But then mm -hmm. if you get sophisticated at all, mm -hmm. what they'll say is, we have elders who I'm sure can respond to what you've said. It's almost, I mean, when they, yeah. when they came to my house um, some years ago, there was these two Middle Eastern 
Jehovah's Witnesses, which was really funny because oh, wow. they were both well, because this is interesting because they were both Catholics before. Okay. And so it's almost like the start of a joke, right? So I'm sitting outside of my house, I'm watering a tree I just planted. And here I am, a former Muslim, now I'm a Christian. And up walk these former Christians who are now Jehovah's Witnesses. So okay. I was a former Unitarian who's now a Trinitarian being approached by two Middle Easterners who were former Trinitarians who are now Unitarians. And they come okay. to my house. Uh, so it's like the start of a funny joke. But um, we centered on these issues, and they did say at some point, well, let, me, let us go talk to our elders. Let us go talk to our, um, to our kingdom hall folks. And they would. And then if I, if I answered a little too close to the mark, I would get blacklisted, or that person wouldn't come back. So one of them didn't come back. The other one did. Mm. But the other person didn't come back. And, I, and at the end of the conversations, I basically had to say, hey, You've asked me to trust the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, the heads, of the, the heads of the Jehovah's Witnesses movement. You've asked me to trust these people as authorities. And I've asked you numerous times, why? Why should I, given these problems I have? And he was upset and he said, they told me you were going to do this. They told me you were going to try to get me to distrust them. And I said, no, I'm not trying to get you to distrust them. I'm asking you why I should. You came to my house. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll see something very similar with Muslims in general but with Ahmadis in specific, because they do have this respect that their elders will have the answers. Because there's a mystique, there's an aura of this sort of uh, intelligentsia and a wisdom be behind that. And there is some really reality to that. But they do, they, stumping them won't rattle them. It just means I have to go to a different source. Hmm. Yes. So what are some effective ways that you found to share the gospel with them? Mm. Well, a couple of ways I think that are really important, and I've done this with multiple uh, people of different worldviews, uh, including as well uh, Ahmadi Muslims, is I think that you have to at some point, and it's a matter of prayer, but at some point when God grants the wisdom to find out and get to the motivation behind a conversation. Because Ahmadis are, are not, like a lot of Muslims who are just, just I'm a Muslim, leave me alone. Um, they're not. They tend to be, Ahmadis tend to be very, very missional. So they have motivation in talking with you. And it's usually mm -hmm. not to find out what does Christianity have to say about this. They think mm -hmm. they already know because mm -hmm. they've been taught how to respond to Christian responses. So um, if you got to the, to the heart of it all and got to the motivations and said, what if I could show you that the gospel is true? If I could prove to you the gospel is true, that Jesus is God in the flesh, and that he proved himself true on this because he died and then rose from the dead to vindicate his claims. Um, what if I could show you that's true? Would you leave being um, a Muslim altogether and embrace Christ? Now, what they have to say is yes, of course. Who's going to say no? If you show it to me, I won't believe it. Almost no one does that. But the reality is that I follow up and say, wait, 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 you answered a little too quickly. I ask people this question. What would happen if you did? What would you feel like if you became a Christian tomorrow um, because you knew it was true and then you had to go tell your parents or your community? What would they do? And by the way, what might you feel like? Would you feel like a traitor? Would you feel like a fraud? Would you feel like these things? Um, and if they, you know, try to answer and say, well, it doesn't matter what I'd feel like because it's true, it's true. Yeah, yeah. The important thing is that you now know and they now know that you know that there are personal barriers to belief that have nothing to do with the truth and everything mm -hmm. to do with the consequences of the truth. So 
I think that's an important thing to, to do. But the second thing is, uh, I think is to, I believe this is true um, with regard to Muslims and anybody really, is you find out what it is they care about, why they hold to their worldview, because the gospel will surprisingly affirm why someone holds on to their worldview, but say that that worldview doesn't give you an adequate intellectual or even in emotional basis to hold on to it. What do I mean by that? A couple of things. When you look at um, the essential creed of Islam, the call the takbir, you know, uh, it's the uh, Allahu Akbar, God is greater. You know, Muslims all over the world say Allahu Akbar all the time. I did as a Muslim, and a lot of Muslims say it all the time. It's not a terrorist chant. It is a statement, uh, God is greater, uh, because Islam was essentially founded in competition with other worldviews, Judaism and Christianity and a paganism of its day. So the central idea for the Muslim is God's greatness. That's the central fundamental tenet of Islam is that God is greater than anything you can possibly conceive of. And so God is not great if in a Muslim mind if he gets trapped in a body like Jesus. God is not great if he dies on a cross. God is not great if the Holy Spirit needs to help God the Father out in a, in a trinity and these kind of things. So what I find is that's a wonderful pursuit to try to find out how can I understand God to be truly and limitlessly great. Wonderful, great, fantastic. That's what Christians want too. Psalm 145, his greatness is unsearchable. But the question then becomes, what accounts for God's greatness? What worldview best describes that? So you're meeting Muslims where they are, and they want to find and search and worship a God who is truly and incomparably great. And they reject certain ideas of Christianity because they believe that it actually denigrates his greatness. Mm -hmm. I think the way to reach out is to say, no, Trinity, the incarnation, and the cross actually demonstrate God's greatness. They don't insult his greatness. Now, with Ahmadis in specific, when you look at what their central phrase, that central phrase uh, that's unique to them in the Islamic world, which is love for all hatred for none. I remember specifically being in, in an Ahmadi mosque debating whether or not Jesus rose from the dead or not. Was he who he said he was in the Gospels? Mm -hmm. And as I, as I formulated my opinions and my thoughts on this, I wanted to use something that they cared about, which was this phrase written all over the mosque, love for all, hatred for none. I said, you know, when you look at the Quran, you see that God loves the charitable, God loves the generous, God loves the honorable, God loves the honest, God loves the one who takes care of widows and orphans and all that stuff. Wonderful, great. But it also says God does not love the sinner or the backslider or the thief or the liar or the, um, the hypocrite. You, you see who God does not love often. In fact, there's more instances of who God doesn't love than who God does in the Quran. I said, yet on your walls, you see this phrase, love for all, hatred for none. I don't think the Quran justifies that statement, but I know who does. That it's the person and work of Christ. Because the reason there's a cross is because all hated God. They wanted to be him, and they don't like that they're not him. That's what sin is. But Christ so loved the world, God so loved the world, that's everyone, that he gave his only begotten son in sacrifice to actually 
show his love for all people. Because the greatest expression of love that we're capable of is self-sacrifice. And so if you have truly love for all and hatred for none, you would do something that demonstrates the greatest possible love there could be. So if God is truly greater, Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest possible being, then he would express the greatest possible ethic, which is love, in the greatest possible way, which is self-sacrifice. Islam has no idea, no picture of that kind of self-sacrifice for God. Only the Christian message has it. So if we are to, to aspire as human beings, as lowly, sinful human beings, to this lofty ideal of love for all, hatred for none, then the God we seek to serve must be able to actually live out love for all, hatred for none. And only one worldview tells you, not only in lip service, in words, that God has love for all and hatred for none, but that in actions, in actual history, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5.8. So I think to summarize this, I would say the way to reach an Ahmadi Muslim is to take that which they care about and this wonderful phrase of love for all and hatred for none only makes sense in the Christian worldview. So find out what they care about, figure out how the gospel ties into it, but offers the best and better answer to the thing that they're looking for. Their worldview doesn't offer even close to as good an answer. So find out what they wish was true. It's sort of like what Blaise Pascal said years ago. He said um, that men despise religion because they fear that it may be true. He says the trick is to, to show them that religion is worthy of reverence and respect. And then he says, make good men wish it were true and then show them that it is. So if you mm. f- focus on something that a Muslim wants to be true, love for all, hatred for none, and then you show them that the gospel actually solely makes sense of that phrase, then you can make them wish it were true, and then you have to back it up and say, this is actually true. So I think there's wonderful ways to reach out to the Ahmadi Muslims, um, and using this sentiment that they have is a chief and really powerful way. In fact, I, yeah. as I said before, I, I, mean, I saw, when I spoke on this issue, at this debate at this mosque, a young Muslim guy walked up to me, and he said, I think I am where you were years ago in your journey of faith. I just need a little nudge. And I said, well, why don't you come to church tomorrow? I'm speaking at a local church. All I'm going to ask you to do is come to church. You don't have to do anything, just come. Would you listen? And he listened. And I spoke on the cost of truth and what truth actually costs us. And he gave his life to Christ right then and there. Um, so you, and this is but one example. So there mm-hmm. are times when, when you speak to what they care about, mm-hmm. it opens their ears. and the heart is opened once the ears are opened. Hmm. Amen. Amen. So, um, yeah, let's talk a little bit more broadly, which uh, we you already have started to, but, um, you know, there are many ideas about what effective Muslim ministry looks like, and many people spend a lot of time searching for the right formula, the right methods of evangelism. What is your approach? What is your philosophy of evangelism to Muslims in general, beyond what you just said, which was, yeah. I think, a, a universal truth for reaching out to really anybody? Yeah. Yeah. So um, thanks for asking that question. I, my approach generally is to, and this is the, the, the approach of our, of our ministry, 
It's based on, uh, it's biblically based. It's based on Colossians chapter four, verses five and six. When you read what the Apostle Paul actually says here in these, these wonderful passages, when he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. So the first thing you need to have is that wisdom, but you need to walk toward them. Um, if you're walking in wisdom alongside them or away from them, then it's ineffective wisdom. What's the point? But you walk in wisdom toward them. So you go and you find where they are um, and you walk in wisdom. What is wisdom but tactically applied knowledge? That's all it is, 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 is information tactically applied to the situation you find yourself in. So you walk in wisdom toward them. And then he says, making the best use of the time. And as you know, given your interactions with Muslims, um, whether Middle Eastern or Eastern or whatever, African, you name it, we're not the best, and I can speak from the Lebanese background that I come from, we're not the most efficient people in the whole world when it comes to time. You know, there's this, uh, there's this f- funny joke about um, a Swiss missionary who comes to a, a, a country in Africa and he's uh, speaking and he's trying to do these evangelistic rallies. And he, the, the rally time is set for 11 o'clock a.m. and no one shows up till 1.30. And he gets mm-hmm. f- more and more frustrated. This, you know, white Northern European guy is really frustrated. He's like, why doesn't anybody come on time? And finally, his African host says, um, uh, you Swiss have all the watches, but we Africans have all the time. Um, and uh, it's true in the Middle East as well. My people, you know, we, they often say you can always tell what someone cares about by how many words they have for a certain thing. So, you know, the Inuits have like seven words for different kinds of snow because it's mm. such an important part of their lives. Um, and in, in Arabic, we have um, four words for cousin. We have two words for aunt, two words for uncle, um, mm-hmm. depending on which side of the family they come from. And all these things, because mm-hmm. family is so important. We have like one word that means hour, watch, and clock yes. um, and time. <laughs> it means almost nothing to us. My point is, is that Paul, a Middle Eastern Jew, is saying make the best use of the time. He's not saying be Swiss-like in your efficiency of conversation. <laughs> what he's saying is answer the questions they actually care about. Address what they care about. And then he has this wonderful phrase where he says, um, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. And that last, or in, in another translation, how you may know how you, how you ought to answer everyone. What's interesting about that is that when you look at the last word of that phrase, he's not saying you should know how to answer each religion or each question or each controversy. We're not in the question answering business. He says we are to answer each person. We're in the people answering business because questions, issues, and controversies don't need answers, but people do. And they use their questions to get them. So my approach, generally speaking, is to answer the person, not the question. I'll give you an example of what I mean. One day, a friend of mine invited me to go and um, he had met a guy who was um, a Muslim guy. And he said, why don't you come to this guy's house? He was interested in why you became a Christian. You know, the evidence for the resurrection was a big part of that. He said, so why don't you come to his house uh, around dinner time, and they'll be expecting us and we'll talk about it. So great, I'll do that. So my friend and I get there a little early. Um, well, not early. We're actually on time. He's just late because surprise, you know, he's late. Uh, but we get to the door and his wife answers with her sister. Her sister is there and she answers. She's Muhajjabi. She's wearing, she's wearing hijab um, and her husband's not home yet from his job. And so she invite, invites us in, says, you know, he's going to be here soon. My sister and I will go into the other room because they can't be alone with us in the room. 
And she had, you know, a, a tray of food that was piled as high as my eye, you know, I mean, the, the typical Middle Eastern. And so finally he comes in. He comes in late, but he comes home from his job working as a dealer at a local casino. Now, gambling is haram in Islam. Mm -hmm. So I already know a couple of things about this guy, about how seriously he takes his faith. And uh, so he sits down and his friend comes over uh, as well. So we're going to have this four-way conversation, uh, me and my friend and him and his friend. And um, we begin to have a discussion about the resurrection and why I believe Jesus actually rose from the dead as a matter of history. And he stopped me in the middle of my second point. I said, hold on, hold on. He said, pause. He says, you're from Lebanon, man. How is it that, you know, your people and our people have suffered so much? How do we even know that this God is good and exists if he lets people suffer so much, especially people who seem to be so religious? It occurred to me suddenly, this guy who has a Muslim first name, whose wife is Muhajibi, who in all outward appearances except for his job, seemed to be Muslim, was actually an agnostic. And so mm. I had to adapt and answer the question he was actually asking was, how can a good God who knows everything and is all-powerful possibly exist in a world where there's evil and suffering in the world? And that was his fundamental question. So I made it, so you make an assumption about what someone actually believes based on his name or his even religious identity, and you're supposed to answer that person. So I would say that there's no one size fits all. Just because you're mm -hmm. talking to somebody who claims to come from a Muslim background doesn't mean they actually care about that Muslim background very much. Or if they do care about it, it might be a cultural background where they're more interested in staying what they are and uh, upholding family honor than they are in actually coming to the truth. And you have to expose that as well um, and, and find out what the motivations are. But let's say you're talking to somebody who is religious. I think going back to that what do they care about? How can we come to a common platform? I don't like, I mean, I don't mind a bridges metaphor. I mean, Crescent Project, it's all about bridges, right? Um, and I know Fawad, a good friend of mine, of course, would agree mm -hmm. with me that bridges are great, metaphorically speaking, but sometimes if it's a two-way bridge, it suggests that you can go over to their side and they can go over to yours. And so I also like, I also like in addition to that, I like a, another metaphor, which is a platform. So mm -hmm. you come upon a common platform. And we're going to jump off the platform into various pools, like in the circus high dive acts, you know, we're going to jump off into a pool. Some pools have no water in them whatsoever. A couple of pools have some water, but not enough to save you when you dive in. Only one pool has all the water. And so what I like to do is say, we're on a common platform with my Muslim friends, and that is God exists and God is incomparably great. Mm -hmm. Now, if we understand the Trinity well, if we understand the incarnation well, if we understand what the cross is all about well, we can demonstrate that the pool of the gospel is so deep and so wide that we can jump into it, not in a blind faith, but in a supported faith and a trust that that water will be enough for us to find safety within. And we can speak to the Muslim desire for a God who is truly great um, by demonstrating God's greatness in the gospel. I say that though, that might be an intellectual and an emotional journey, but there are Muslims who have come to faith. I know this. I know a Muslim who came to faith because she had a dream. She'd never really heard the gospel at all. She had a dream about a resurrection happening. She wanted to know what this was, and all a missionary had to do was explain to her what the resurrection was about, not even prove it to her, just explain it to her, and she mm -hmm. came to faith like that. It can happen. Wow. So um, 
chief and foremost, I would say, is the winsomeness, love, acceptance, and um, genuine care for the well-being of a Muslim by a Christian. Be surprising. Mm -hmm. They expect you to be judgmental and fearful and prejudiced. And when you're not those things, it shatters stereotypes. It grants you a hearing you might not otherwise get because you're acting the way they might not otherwise suspect. So I think that winsomeness and that love gets you an opportunity you otherwise might not have. And you may not even ever have to explain the in and outs of why the Bible's never been changed. Maybe you will. You probably will. But you might not. And it's just because they think Christ did something in you. I want what you have. Hmm. Yes. Yes, that's great. And um, do you have some stories, some more stories that you would like to share about Muslims that you've seen come to Christ? Yeah, indeed. Uh, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, let me give you one in specific. I was at an um, open forum at Indiana University. I was giving a talk um, on my own journey of faith, and it was open mic. Any question people, kids wanted to ask, they could, or students wanted to ask, they could. And a young guy comes up to the microphone and he said, look, I used to, I used to go to Catholic school in my home country uh, in the Middle East because those were some of the best and well-funded schools mm -hmm. there. Um, and I would try to knock the faith out of a lot of Christians, which is basically my story. And I came to see that the Bible was you know, corrupted and changed and all these things. He says, but now I come to America and I start reading it for myself and looking into it myself. And I'm not so sure that it's been changed. Um, and so some of these things are really quite good. Um, my question for you, he asked, was, how could I wrestle with the idea that Jesus is God? And so I said, my goodness, your journey mirrors my journey so closely. So we had a conversation. And what was a real important point for him wasn't even just the intellectual point of how can I defend the incarnation of Jesus, though we did, in fact, do that for hours. It was, is it worth it? Is, is what is to come in terms of the isolation from family and the ostracization from community? Is it worth it? And we spent some time on that. And on the phone, he gave his life to Christ. Um, he didn't live in the same state I live in, but he gave his life to Christ. And he's been serving the Lord ever since then. There was a young guy as well from an Indian background who um, had some serious questions, intellectual questions, and he had found some answers to those in terms of the Christian faith. And I was having a skeptics night at a church, and he wanted to meet with me ahead of time. And I remember sitting down with him, and he was looking down at his shoes a lot, head down, um, as if all the answers to my questions and my objections were written on his top of his shoes. You know? <laughs> um, and he looks up at me and he says, you know, I really do know this is the truth. I do know it. And this is his words to me. He said, my father has never told me that he loves me and is proud of me. And if I become a Christian, he never will. Hmm. Um, when he was confronted with that was the main reason why it wasn't the intellectual, it was the baggage, he was able to wrestle with it. Was it easy? Absolutely not. And there were Christians who came alongside him, and um, he gave his life to Christ and followed him after that. I can give story after story of that, where people have come to the Lord because their intellectual obstacles are now out of the way. There's no more intellectual excuse to not accept who Christ is. Now they're confronted with the harsh reality of what it means to, lay, to take, pick up your cross daily and follow him. And the, the key here, Rashida, I think, 
is that Christians, yes, I'm okay with spot evangelism. I'm okay with doing it on the bus. I'm okay with doing it on a plane. I'm okay with doing it in the doctor's office or at work. But recognize something that at some point, they are going to want to know, where will you be? If this is true Mm -hmm. and worth it, where will you be when I pay the price? And a Christian is, I think, called to a life of communion with those who need that communion. We are to bear one another's burdens. And so I would, that's a big piece of advice I would give is that it's not just the only thing is to preach the gospel. You have to be willing to back it up with your actual actions and come alongside someone and say, I'll be there with you. We'll be community if you lose community. Yes. Yeah, that's really important. I think um, maybe that's part of why the love and the kindness and generosity that Muslims see um, from Christians before they come to Christ is so powerful. Indeed. Is that they, they believe that we are trustworthy, that we will really love them unconditionally, and that, you know, that we would be there for them, that we love them, that they're not just a project or, yeah, yeah. or anything like that, that that's so key. real love. That's so key. I'm so glad you said that. That's so key. They can't be. When guys came and talked to me, I could tell I was a project. And when, when there were Christians who talked to me, I knew with certain of them, I wasn't a project. I was just someone that, that they loved and wanted to see in heaven. And if I never came to faith, they'd still be my friend. And if I did come to faith, now we're brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we're down to my final question, which is just any advice or encouragement that you would like to share with those uh, who are involved in Muslim ministry and to those who have Muslim friends, coworkers, neighbors, what, what final words would you have for them? Yeah, I'm so glad I could uh, sort of end it on this one. It took me nine years to become a Christian from the time of the first faithful witness of people who were actually giving me answers to my, uh, my objections and actually offering some objections of their own for me to have to wrestle with. There, two guys came to the door of my apartment complex at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Dave and Pete. And um, I gave them a lot to chew on. I made them uncomfortable a lot. And they'd come back and come back and they'd come back. One of the things that they didn't realize was that they were having an impact on me and I never let them know it because I didn't mm-hmm. want them to know it. I didn't, I didn't like that they were having an impact. And so from their perspective, they thought they were getting nowhere. Like, what are we doing this for? This is getting mm-hmm. nowhere. He's just a stubborn whatever, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But they kept at it. I didn't become a Christian for years later, well after I've never seen them again. Mm-hmm. Um, but having come to faith, I look back at those conversations and I know that they had an impact on me. So my encouragement, and by the way, I gave my story of coming to faith to focus on the family some years ago. And Pete, one of those guys, heard it. This is 20-something years after I became a believer. Mm -hmm. Um, And he heard it and he's like, oh my goodness, I'm the Pete. I'm the guy. (laughs) It really did matter. And here's my point, my encouragement. If you're engaged in Muslim ministry, whether it's in a formal way, because you're a part of a mission or you're a part of a ministry, or it's just part of the missions and ministry that you do in your everyday life, um, Mm -hmm. as we're all called to do, and you feel like you're getting nowhere, you might be surprised how, how, how far you're actually getting. You might be surprised the impact you're actually having. So don't lose heart. Don't give up. Yes, it might be tough and you might be seeing zero fruit 
that you can perceive, but God is perceiving something else. And as long as you seek the Lord's wisdom and he grants it to you that it's not a time to, to, to turn, because sometimes you have to turn and spend some time elsewhere. That, that does happen. The Lord did it and we can do it. But if you think you're having no impact, look through heaven's eyes because you might be having more impact than you might realize. Those guys never would have known it. And they found out two decades later that what they said mattered. So yeah. keep it up. Yes, that's that's a great encouragement. And it's one that we have to be reminded of again and again um, to not, well, it's about faith, right? Mm-hmm. It's about believing that that we're sowing seeds and what we're doing in obedience to Christ is important and of eternal value and it's significant and, you know, all of those things that, that it's kingdom work and that it's God's, it's, it's God's job to, to bring the fruit and it's our job to be faithful. Indeed. Indeed. We just do what he tells us to do. (laughs) Leave leave, Leave the rest to him. Well, thank you so much, Abdu, for coming on the podcast, giving your time and sharing with us, encouraging us. And um, would you mind closing us in a word of prayer? Oh, I'd be honored to do so. Thank you so much, Rashida, for having me. And thank you for Christian Project and all you guys do to reach the world for the gospel, especially the Muslim world. Uh, Father, we are grateful um, for the gift of technology that allows us to have this conversation. Um, and pass that conversation on, Lord. And for the, anybody who's listening, whether there are Christians who are just dipping their toe into the waters of Muslim evangelism, or there are those who've been wading in it neck deep um, and have uh, either been discouraged or have seen tremendous fruit, whoever it might be, or even if there's Muslims who somehow happen upon this podcast and they're listening, I pray, Holy Spirit, interact, strengthen and encourage those who already believe in you. Lord, invite and entice those who don't yet know what it means to have a relationship with you. Um, stimulate the heart, stimulate the mind. You are the God of the intellect. You are the God of the, of the heart and the emotions. Reach the whole person, Lord. We ask you to bless um, anything good that has come from this podcast. And we ask you, Lord, to cover up anything that we botched. Um, Holy Spirit, you can do amazing things, even with our frailties. And may those who want to serve you, whether they're thinking about evangelism or they've been engaged in it for years, I ask you, Lord, to strengthen them, embolden them, and uh, equip your church to reach this world uh, with the gospel's sake, especially our Muslim friends who, for whom you died because they are made in your image. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Crescent Project Radio. We believe we have a hope worth sharing. Learn more about Crescent Project online at crescentproject.org, where you can find all of our previous podcasts featuring testimonies from former Muslims, teaching and apologetics, interviews with ministry leaders and book authors, along with commentary on current events and ministry news. Email us your comments or questions to radio at crescentproject.org. Stay connected by subscribing to our bi-monthly email, Call to Prayer, which is focused on prayer for the Muslim world. We hope you'll join us again next time on Crescent Project Radio.